must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey, and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hey, hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I am your host, Brandon Pollan, and today I am really thrilled to bring in two very special guests to talk about um, a unique clinical aspect that we really haven't covered on the show yet, and that's persistent swelling. As today, I am very humbled to welcome Drs. Kristen Carlin and Gunther Klaus to talk about this a little bit more. And to give a little background on these both, Gunther Klaus is the founder of Close Training and Consulting, located in Colorado. And Kristen Carlin is the Director of Business Relations at, for the Institute of Clinical Excellence, along with being the owner of Evoke Physio, which is her own clinic in the Pittsburgh area. Well, thank you both for all that you do for, you know, obviously educating and helping progress things forward in our industry. And, you know, I know that you both have done a lot throughout your careers and there's a ton that I left out. Would you guys be willing to share a little bit more background into your stories on how you both got to where you are today? Okay, I'm happy to do that. First of all, thanks for having me on this show. I'm excited to share my experience with, you know, swelling, chronic swelling, lymphedema, I've been a lymphedema therapist since 1984. I got my formal training at the Foley Clinic in Germany. Many people know the Foley Clinic as the mecca for clinical lymphology. And so from 1984 till 1990, I was working in Germany as a lymphedema therapist. And then in 1990, I came to the States um, opening with Dr. Lerner uh, opening the first treatment center for lymphedema therapy in uh, New York City. And I thought I would stay a year or two, help him to get the clinic started. Um, We were using exclusively complete decongestive therapy for the treatment in lymphedema. And now it's, what, 29 years later, I'm still here. Um, I worked for eight years in New York City and then subsequent started my own uh, training company where we train physical therapists and occupational therapists in lymphedema therapy. Love it. And Kristen, how about you? Um, I, uh, I went to James Madison University. I graduated in 2005, and then I am originally from Pittsburgh, so I moved back to um, Pittsburgh and went to Chatham University. And when I was at Chatham, there was an opportunity to go to India. And so I um, applied for it. It it was something to do with lymphedema. And I applied for it um, not because I was very interested in lymphedema, but because I wanted to go to India. (laughs) And so um, I got chosen to 
do it. And I kind of, I was exposed to what lymphedema was and uh, I, I was really interested in it. So when I came back um, to the U.S., I got to do a clinical in lymphedema and outpatient orthopedics. And, um, and that the company that I did that with was uh, intending to expand their lymphedema program at the time. So it was kind of a really neat opportunity that I was going to get to have to uh, hone in on my ortho skills and learn from some really great ortho clinicians, but also uh, continue to practice the lymphedema skills that I had learned. So um, right after I graduated in 2007, I took Gunter's course with close training when they came to Pittsburgh. Um, in, in, uh, I think it was in January of 2008. Uh, and I took my board pass and I started working in this outpatient ortho slash lymphedema uh, clinic. So I did that for about 10 years and I uh, had a gained a lot of experience working with patients with true lymphedema, but then also patients with kind of hybrid um, type swelling and venous insufficiency uh, related to chronic obesity and also um, a lot of outpatient um, conditions that had this kind of chronic swelling component that was impacting the patient's progress with PT. So uh, I've been teaching at Chatham, um, teaching the lymphedema, and then also in, in um, an aspect of the orthopedic uh, program for several years and um, really have enjoyed where that's taken me. Um, in the past year, I opened my own practice and I've, I'm doing still a combination of lymphedema, working with breast cancer patients and patients with chronic swelling, true lymphedema, kind of all, all of that, as well as ortho. So that is where I got to here. I love it. Such different stories to get, yeah. get to there, which I always love to hear. And, you know, guys, I know that, you know, before we kind of just get into the more of the management of swelling first, let's get into kind of just first being able to identify, because I recognize now that there's a lot of clinicians listening that probably don't have that subspecialty training and work in just general practice settings, such as orthopedics, neuro, and, and the list goes on and on. So, you know, knowing that there are so many other conditions, reasons why someone can present with persistent swellings apart from lymphedema. And Kristen, you had mentioned some hybrid, um, some hybrid presentations as well. What are some key presentations or red flags in the subjective and objective exam that clinicians should really be on the lookout for regarding anything like as a systemic cause for swelling? Like what are some kind of some big subjective and objective red flags that clinicians should be on the lookout for when it comes to this stuff? I mean, for one thing, you need to screen um, patients for congestive heart failure. Uh, many patients, the older population, uh, people with obesity, they oftentimes have a component of congestive heart failure. And then if you treat patients after cancer therapy, they oftentimes have liver issues, kidney issues that can contribute to systemic swelling. Now, the swelling is oftentimes located in the lower part of the body, um, the, um, the lower limbs because of gravity, but it's really generalized swelling. Another um, aspect that I find very important to recognize in the obese population is patients who have um, malnutrition. Uh, sometimes you can have edema, lower extremity edema from malnutrition, the lack of protein in your diet, or perhaps the liver not being able to um, 
put enough protein into the systemic circulation. That's oftentimes the case in bariatric patients who have had bariatric surgery and are now malnutrition and they are oftentimes misdiagnosed as having lymphedema. And I think where we need to be look on the lookout is on those patients who come in uh, for treatment who have uh, multifactorial edema. They don't have just lymphedema, they have congestive heart failure, they are malnourished. Um, all this good stuff needs to be recognized by someone who has had adequate training in that field. Yeah, I, I completely agree with all of that. Like specifically, you know, with some of those things with like the CHF um, or acute renal failure, those types of things, specifically things that I'd be looking for would be presence of bilateral swelling uh, or like a recent change or worsening of their symptoms or their swelling, shortness of breath, chest heaviness, um, inability to lay flat, sometimes uh, decreased urine output, GI upset I've seen in, in the clinic. Also, just it, you know, being aware of if, there's, if there would be any infection on board, fever, chills, um, pain, which is not typically a, a symptom of lymphedema um, if the patient is experiencing an increase or new onset of pain, um, decreased appetite, unexplained weight loss. Those are some of the things that I ask about and look out for just to make sure that we're ruling anything um, sinister out before we proceed with any type of treatment. Because a lot of the patients that I see, especially in, in my setting, um, have not really been cleared medically. They might come to me via direct access. They might be referred to me from a home care PT. Um, they just kind of find me somehow and then it's my job to make sure that, that um, it's safe to proceed with any type of treatment. Gotcha. And, and Kristen, if I might add one kind of follow-up question to that, um, would you say it's fair? You had mentioned, of course, some of the signs of um, infection and such. Um, does cellulitis play a role in this as well? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's important to note that some that people who do have a, a component of chronic swelling do have uh, some skin color changes, but uh, and so sometimes their baseline can be a little bit pink or red, um, and it's not an actual infection. But but we need to make sure of that um, and ask if they've got any any um, other signs of, of something systemic uh, going on, like fever, chills, which can also be very um, mild or you know not like you they might not unless you actually ask because it could be just a very low-grade fever um, and, and they might think that it's due to hormonal changes or something you know sometimes people don't think to bring stuff like that up if it's not that significant but it's but a baseline level of it is present yeah and to kind of go at that a little bit Kristen I'm going to switch and go to the next one after that then we'll come back to the other one just because it kind of flows with that could we dive in a little bit deeper into, because I know some therapists, particularly in different settings, may not see cellulitis a whole lot frequently. Do you think you guys could dive in a little bit deeper into what specifically it is and what are some other things to kind of really look out for so that it really gets picked up soon? Yeah, cellulitis is a very serious skin infection. And that absolutely needs to be recognized and, of course, treated with antibiotics. 
And I think, you know, as Kristen was saying earlier, some people come in and they have a little bit of retinal erythema in their edema presentation, oftentimes in the lower extremities you see it. But if the redness is acute, if it's very recent, and the patient has other signs of infection, such as develops a fever, has pain associated with the swelling, where before the swelling was not painful. Um, they oftentimes have the typical flu-like symptoms. They just don't feel very well. They, they feel very weak. Um, that should be recognized as a serious, potentially life-threatening complication of edema. Now, particularly patients with high-protein edemas are susceptible for developing cellulitis. It's not so much your regular edema after like, let's say your orthopedic population suffers, but perhaps a patient who has had chronic swelling for some time or has had lymph nodes removed from under the arm or after gynecological surgery from inguinal node dissection when the limb is at risk for lymphedema. These patients need to be educated about the signs and symptoms of infections. And it's really a potentially life-threatening condition that the patient needs to go and see a physician or even on the weekend go to the emergency room and have it determined whether it is a cellulitis or not because early treatment determines you know, how the patient is progressing. If the cellulitis is recognized very early, patients oftentimes are given an oral antibiotic and in a few days they feel much better again and the cellulitis is subsiding. If it lingers too long, then patients will go into the hospital and sometimes go on two or three days of intravenous antibiotics. And that's of course way more troublesome for the patient and it's also way more costly for the insurance, or if the patient doesn't have insurance, uh, way more costly for them. And I'll just add to um, patients don't always, you know, I, I had a patient several years ago, I think it was actually a patient of one of my colleagues, but uh, he was being treated for his shoulder, and she had recognized that his lit, he had severe hemocytor staining and a low level of swelling in his leg. And you know, she could have just ignored that, but she asked a few questions and it turns out that, you know, he works full time. He was a teacher. He was a football coach, very active um, individual. But um, he, when we asked him about his legs, he said, yeah, actually I have um, probably about once a year, I get hospitalized for cellulitis infections. And he said, it's a real bummer. I have to miss work. You know, I can't coach. It costs a lot of money. And um, it was as simple as, you know, we did one or two treatments to get that swelling down. He didn't have active cellulitis at the time, obviously. Um, but we did one or two treatments to get the swelling down, fitted him with custom stockings, and he has not had to date any other hospitalizations due to cellulitis or issues with this. So it's it's an important thing, I think, to recognize that people who do have a level of persistent swelling in their leg or in their arm are at more of a risk for developing it because that swelling basically acts as a breeding ground for bacteria. Um, and so if we can recognize this and help 
point people in the right direction and get, um, you know, take care of this swelling problem, it significantly reduces the risk for um, having it recur. And people with, with um, any openings in their skin or if their nail beds aren't well-maintained, um, if they have openings or cracks um, in their skin, they're more susceptible to it also. So just educating people on, on you know, better foot nail care, that type of thing. Gotcha. And, you know, knowing, of course, that, you know, a lot of clinicians right now, and particularly like the orthopedic realm too, especially when we're dealing with kind of that post-op swelling initially, and maybe there is another swelling component part in there too. You know, what as a clinician, like what are some things that really make you decide whether to specifically go after the swelling and treat the swelling when assessing a patient versus when to not and see if it'll respond, you know, as a normal post-operative case would? I would say, you know, if we've ruled out anything sinister going on and, and it's, it's appropriate to be treated and I have the skill set to treat them, um, the two of the most important things that I think uh, need to be on board is if the patient perceives the swelling as a problem affecting their function um, and if I as a clinician perceive that the swelling is limiting or slowing their progress with PT, um, because I've found over the years that if, if the patient does not perceive this as a problem, um, it's going to be very hard for that patient to be compliant with potentially with wearing compression socks. Um, the, every patient who ideally should be treated realistically is not going to succeed um, if they don't really believe that this is, that this is an issue for them. Um, so I can help educate them on that, but I can't, um, you know, if they, if they say I would never wear compression stockings, then, it, you know, I, I, I as a clinician have to think twice if, if, if it's really um, necessary or going to benefit them in the long run that I perform some short-term treatment if their swelling is going to come right back if they're not going to wear a compression sock. So, you know, I think it, there's, there's some definitely the patient needs to be on board with managing it. I need to, pers- you know, understand that it is affecting their, or slowing their progress orthopedically and, um, and have the skills to treat it, and then also um, be sure that there's nothing else on board, like a blood clot or um, an infection, that type of thing. Yeah, and I think swelling is always an uncomfortable thing in some ways. It's either a symptom of an underlying disease, and you need to look at the swelling and say, is there something that needs to be fixed internally? Is that patient more a candidate for another discipline, maybe a cardiologist or an internal medicine doctor, or is it swelling something that we should tackle and treat? And uh, in that case, as Kristen was already saying, it is also an education issue. If the swelling is troublesome for a patient, they are more apt to do our treatment and then follow through with compression. If the patient does not understand the significance of the swelling, then we need to educate them and we need to um, really do our best to make them understand that it will have long-term repercussions if they don't treat the swelling. And if they still opt to, you know, live with a little bit of swelling because it doesn't impede their function, um, then so be it. But I think in most cases, um, patients are eager to get rid of the swelling because it does limit their function. It makes them uncomfortable and it's just appropriate to treat, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that totally makes sense. And and guys, I recognize that earlier, you guys had already kind of gone into um, some of the red flags or some of the other things to look out for, you know, in regards to the next question, which was originally um, to be on the lookout for something sinister. Was there anything you guys wanted to add on to that? I think, you know, what I have seen some sinister things pop up in the clinic um, over the years, uh, including blood clots, acute congestive heart failure, acute renal failure, um, infections, that type of thing. What, and so I do, I have streamlined some questions that I always ask. And I, and I, when I teach this to you in, in the PT program, I, I think one thing that can never be missed is when did the swelling start? And the, the reason that is important is because, you know, even though lymphedema can present um, seemingly spontaneously, even though we know that because there's an underlying disease, it's not actually, it, the clinical presentation appears to be spontaneous to the patient, but that there, because of the underlying disease, there was really a, an insufficiency of the lymphatic system for quite a while that was probably leading up to that clinical presentation. Um, but I think that if, if we understand when the swelling started, we, it can answer a lot of questions for us in terms of, and it could just be that this is the initial presentation of, of lymphedema and, and there's nothing more to it, but it could also be an indicator that there was something, um, there, there's something else sinister going on if it is a new presentation. So I think if it is a new presentation or if it's, if it's worse, we need to ask those questions. Um, for instance, I had a patient, a post-op hip replacement patient who had no swelling post-operatively. He went, uh, he, I saw him for maybe two months or yeah, probably about two months. He was doing great. He drove to New England to, um, for, he was going to vacation there for like two months and he continued PT up there and he had swelling when he arrived there in his leg um, that was not that significant, but, um, you know, thought, I, I guess the PT thought it was just post-operative and they treated it with K-take. And then he came back, you know, six weeks later or so to Pittsburgh and, and I took a look at his leg and, and he sure enough, he had a blood clot. Um, but I, and I think that that would have been caught had that therapist asked, when did the swelling start? So, Clearly, the swelling started when he was driving on a long car ride up to New England from Pittsburgh, um, and that could have been caught with that simple question. So anytime there's swelling on board, I think getting a very clear understanding of the timeline is very important. And then also um, understanding or asking if there's any other new signs or symptoms that are present that weren't present before when this, around the time when the swelling started. Um, and th again, that goes back to um, asking if they've had any shortness of breath or um, GI upset, that type of thing, fever, chills, pain, um, anything that's new around the time that swelling started. And then I always ask too if they have a history of infections or slow healing wounds or if they have leg pain or pain with leg elevation to kind of um, clue me into if there's maybe an arterial thing going on. Um, so I think I think getting a a very clear picture subjectively is is definitely the most important piece of this um, before we get um, started with anything else. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more to this. I would also empower uh, would like to empower 
therapists who are either formally trained in CDT and completely congestive therapy or who have no training to please, if it doesn't look right, to contact the referring physician because I feel that lately we get so many multifactorial edemas, that means patients who have edema from different origins, um, that um, a therapist should never hesitate picking up the phone, maybe asking questions to the referring physician because the reality of things is that um, patients get referred with a script, evaluate and treat and there's not enough screening done ahead of time. Sometimes the patient is not a good candidate for um, manual lymph drainage and compression therapy right away. They may need other services first. And so I would say don't ever hesitate picking up the phone, talking to the nurse or the referring physician and say, hey, what's going on with the patient? Appreciate the referral, but maybe they're not a candidate for treatment at this time so that you establish priorities in their care and, and address the congestive heart failure first, address their high blood pressure first before we start treating them with, with MLD and compression. And also to that too, because I do see direct access patients that sometimes these patients don't even have, they don't have a referring physician. So it's up to me to know, you know, who's in my wheelhouse, who, who I can collaborate with, who can help this patient or help me rule things out um, before I can proceed with a patient. So I think it's really important to, um, you know, to feel comfortable contacting their primary care physician um, if, if they have one or um, knowing a, a good cardiologist to which to refer the patient to, uh, knowing a good, if, I mean, if, if you're not a trained therapist, knowing a good um, trained therapist who's skilled in differential diagnostics to also incorporate into the conversation. Yeah, I think, I think that in general, this, the, the, the treatment to do with swelling and the management of these patients, it does many times require quite a bit of collaboration between disciplines. Um, and so just understanding that and being willing and able to do that and have people that you know that will take good care of your patients and help you is really important. No, I think you both brought up really good points there, especially really to consider when we're looking at screening these individuals to see, are they right for this type of treatment or are they not? Do they need to get something else prior? And I think that's really helpful. And you know, I recognize that, you know, some, after we kind of go through that and we've screened and we've deemed that, you know, a patient is appropriate for um, these kind of strategies and therapies to help with the swelling component. And of course, assume, and I recognize, of course, that not everyone is trained, and I'm not saying that people should practice this um, without being trained, but just to kind of get an understanding of some of the strategies and just kind of an idea of kind of how it works to help manage swelling. If someone's appropriate to kind of work to kind of do some some of this um, swelling reduction strategies, what are some of the strategies that you guys regularly use using the therapies that you've been trained in to help manage this? If if I have identified that they truly have lymphedema and there is a um, you know a component that I you know I know they've had lymph nodes removed or um, cancer cancer related treatment that type of thing or a significant family history of lymphedema, then I. I use the MLB component definitely with, with that patient population. If it is more of a vascular, uh, vascular patient with uh, no known lymphatic involvement and the swelling is like fairly new and it's not fibrotic and doesn't really appear to be combined with lymphedema yet, 
um, then I err on the side of um, doing doing compression, compression wrapping, short stretch compression wrapping, fitting with uh, compression garments and exercise uh, and have less, less of an emphasis on the MLB. Um, but certainly with that true lymphedema patient, the MLB is a necessary component. Um, that's the manual lymphatic drainage massage. And then for ortho patients who really um, didn't really have a, a persistent swelling component prior to their prior to their orthopedic um, injury or surgery, uh, but are having a problem with persistent swelling outside the joint capsule postoperatively or post-injury, I will use a double layer tuba grips to kind of create a little bit more uh, of a compression gradient, more distally and less proximally to kind of push, help push that fluid up and out of the limb. Um, and usually this is for like an, an um, post-op ankle surgery or a, um, you know, toe, persistent toe swelling, the bunionectomy, um, that type of thing, which I don't see that often anymore. But um, basically using that double layer tuber grip with some toe wrapping uh, is really helpful. And I, I do the same thing for post-op wrist fractures too that have really persistent hand and finger swelling. I'll do the finger wrapping and then utilize a double layer tuber grip from the wrist up to the elbow. Um, and that can really help resolve their they're swelling a lot more quickly. Um, if you do, were to do a short stretch wrap on those patients, it, I, my um, feeling is that it, comprom it, it it's fine to do, but most people, orthotherapists, don't have access to those materials, and the patient really only needs to be wrapped once or twice because you really have to weigh the, um, the you know, the need for getting the swelling down with uh, not wanting to further limit their mobility for an extended period of time. So really you just want to have it on like once or twice and then take it off. Um, and then the, the tuber grip is a nice way to manage that. So that's, you know, in, in terms of uh, management ortho wise, I think those that some of the principles that I've learned through my training has really helped um, me to be able to apply um, some of them to the ortho setting, but that for the patients with true lymphedema, um, clearly, the MLB and the short stretch compression wrapping is the gold standard. Um, and exercise, I never no, not let anyone exercise. <laughs> so I make exercise a very um, uh, necessary component with all of my patients, regardless of if it's more so lymphedema or venous insufficiency or postoperative um, sw um, persistent swelling. Yeah, Mm -hmm. For for you need to differentiate here um, the origin of the swelling. If it's an orthopedic case, just a little bit of MLD and like you said, a little bit of compression. Sometimes even with the use of a tube grip, may be appropriate and just enough to get that swelling out to do your rehab a little bit better and more successfully. And then of course, there's another skill set required to treat patients with um, lymphedema. So it really does require someone to have good training and a good understanding of when to use how much of the MLD and the compression. Sometimes it's just a little bit of manual lymph drainage, a little bit of compression goes a long way and you can get those poor surgical swellings reduced quite quickly in order to do your rehab exercises. Then you have the other population that requires you know, a lot more skill and a lot more um, treatment. So recognizing that is, is really important.
Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.